Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, friends, and welcome to the second episode of Rethinking Education Campfire Conversations. This is a recording of a conversation that we held earlier today, uh, which was live streamed to the internet. If you would like to see that, I'll include a link to the Rethinking Education Facebook group in the show notes. Please feel free to, to join the group. It's a private group, so you do have to join in order to view it. Um, but then you get to see all of our faces as well as hearing our voices and our thoughts. This was a really lovely episode, if I may say so myself. We had two guests with us today, Kulvan Atwal, a brilliant inspirational head teacher and friend of the podcast. There's a former episode which I strongly recommend people listen to. And Lottie Cook from Pupil Power, a, an organization that's dedicated to helping young people rethink and reform, and reshape education in a way that is fit for purpose and for life for young people in the 21st century. If you would like to get involved in any future Campfire Conversations, please do join the Rethinking Education Mighty Network. You can do so at rethinking-education.mn.co or by downloading the Mighty Network's app and searching for Rethinking Education. Before I hand over to the conversation that we had earlier today, a quick word about sound quality. Unfortunately, I neglected to hit record on Zoom earlier, which would have made my life a whole lot easier. Instead, I have had to spend the day figuring out how to record it using microphones and screencasting software and all kinds of things that you really don't want to be hearing about. But this conversation is really worth listening to, even if the sound quality isn't quite what we would like it to be. So without further ado, I will pass over to an earlier version of myself, introducing this fascinating, heartwarming and uplifting conversation with Kath Pratt, Natalie Rothwell-Warn, Sarah Fraser, Kate McAllister, Kulvan Atwal, and Lottie Cook. Okay, I believe we are live on Facebook once again. Hello, anybody who may be watching us, uh, and hello to everybody who's joining me on the screen today. Um, thank you very much. So this is a, a campfire conversation, which is a a series of live streamed group conversations with people who want to rethink and reform education so as to bring about a more harmonious, less hair-raising state of world affairs. Today, we are joined by some regular faces and also by two special guests, by Lottie Cook, a member of Pupil Power, a community of young people who are working together to rethink education from the ground up, as it were, and Kulvan Atwal, the head teacher of two schools in East London, who is doing a really impressive job of reforming education from the top down, if you like, from the head teacher's perspective. And the rest of us are all somewhere in the middle or maybe somewhere around the outside. Um, so let's start by introducing ourselves. We'll have a brief introduction from our regular guests and then a bit more of a detailed introduction from our two special guests. So let's start with Kath. 
Hi everyone, it's great to be back. Thank you, James. Um, I'm Kath, I'm founder at Sueni, which is a sort of social enterprise uh, designed to rethink education. I've been rethinking um, education for about the last 18 years. Um, I've got four kids, I've got four boys, uh, aged nine and seven, four and two. Uh, and at the moment we're um, home educating them as well, which is fantastic. But um, Sueni's on the cliffs of Cornwall um, and we're building it currently. So it's all quite exciting and a little bit scary. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. It's a good thing to have in balance, excitement and, and fear. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Natalie. Hi. Um, I hope my connection uh, holds with this weather that we've got at the moment and hope you're all well. Um, I'm Natalie and um, I was a primary school teacher for over 20 years. Uh, I left to do a Masters in Sustainable Development, thinking I'd take a new career path, but it ironically brought me back to um, education from a social sustainability perspective. Um, and now I'm doing a doctorate, which is um, really in grassroots, uh, interesting grassroots approach to rethinking education by um, having conversations with teachers and pupils together about how well-being can thrive through teaching and learning experience in mainstream education. Lovely, thank you. Sarah? Hi, I'm Sarah. Um, I used to teach in secondary education uh, about 10 years ago and then after three years I left, did something completely different. I then had my own children five years ago and then I had to start thinking about education again um, and now I'm doing my forest school training and I'm thinking about and working on something to bring forest schools into mainstream education in more of a robust way. So I'm a kind of parent perspective but also a bit to do with um, natural and environmental education as well. Wonderful, thank you. And Kate? Hi, <clears throat> sorry, I'm Kate. I'm co-founder with James with Rethinking Education, but mostly these days I'm the head of the Hive School in Dominican Republic. Um, rethinking Education is pretty much all I do. So nice to be back. <laughs> Thank you. And I am James and I was also a teacher for 12 years. And now I work um, at the UCL Institute of Education in the Center for Educational Leadership, among other things. And I'm the host of the Rethinking Education podcast, which is pretty much how I came to meet the majority of the beautiful people that I'm currently sharing a screen with and sitting around a virtual campfire. Is everyone warm enough? It's quite windy in the UK today. I think Kate looks like she's in paradise, as usual. Um, I'll throw a couple of extra logs on to keep us, to keep us going. Watch out for the sparks. Um, so let's start with Lottie. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Um, can you just say where in the world you are and um, and what it is that you do? Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. So I'm Lottie. I'm 18 and I'm from Southampton and I'm a student and activist with the People Power. And the People Power is a network of young people ranging from about 11 to probably 21. And we look at making sure students have a voice in education. We want education to be more democratic for governing bodies to have students sitting with them we want school councils to be reformed and we basically want to represent anything that students in the uk are currently angry about so yeah that's me <laughs> mm, thank you and how did you come to be involved with people power and when did this sort of start for you 
So um, Aaliyah, our founder, and I were on a separate podcast. And being me, I messaged afterwards and went, hey, can I please be involved? <laughs> and she basically said, yeah, keep your eye out. We'll sort something out. And then a few months later, lockdown hit. Uh, we all jumped on a big Zoom call. And this was myself and probably 60 other young people across the United Kingdom. And we all went, look, we've had time to pause and we all think that this is not right. And let's think of ways how we can reform and change and make education more student led while we're in this kind of downtime period. Mm. Thank you. It's really cool. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about pupil power afterwards. And what are you, where are you at in terms of your own education at the moment out of interest? So I'm in year 13. I have three weeks left. <laughs> Um, and then I have summer and then university. So, um, yeah, I'm just in the middle of exams at the moment. Wow. Well, super extra thank you then for making the time in this, what must be a really busy time for you. Or maybe it's a welcome break from, from the revision. <laughs> Definitely. It's nice to just be like, oh, for a minute. So, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. And uh, Colvan, who um, I had the great privilege of, of having a long conversation with recently on the Rethinking Education podcast. Would you like to introduce yourselves to any viewers or listeners? Yeah, thanks for inviting me, James. Um, yeah, I've uh, lived and worked in uh, East London throughout my life. And um, I started um, as a newly qualified teacher in a mainstream resource provision school in Stratford, um, uh, working with a number of children with social, emotional, behavioural difficulties. And from my first day, I was instantly struck by the fact that the quality of those children's learning experiences in that school was, was dependent, so dependent on, on the teacher that they had and how the system was inherently unfair because we, we had teachers who were motivated, inspired, reflective. Uh, yeah, and, and, and we also had teachers who were right at the other end of the scale. And, and, as, and as such, I had children, and my first class was a five-six split class. I had children coming up to me, age nine or ten even, who couldn't read. And so I, I made it my lifelong aim to see how we can we can rethink schools in a way in which that actually we focus as much on the quality of the adults thinking um, and learning as much as we do on the students, because we know that's the biggest factor that impacts on students' learning outcomes in school particularly if, if children are coming from more disadvantaged backgrounds. So I began my master's in my first year. Um, fast forward a few years, I, I, I undertook a doctorate, and my doctorate focused specifically on what factors impact upon teacher engagement and professional learning. Um, and as a consequence of that doctorate, I published a book called The Thinking School on the hope that if it influenced one person um, and to maybe look at their school differently, then our, my job was was done. Um, so yeah, that, that's where I am now. And currently I'm head of two schools. Um, I, like, I like to support schools in difficult situations or have been through a tough time um, because I, I know the impact we can have on those children and, and parents and community in that learning community. So that's where I am currently. Thank you very much. Um, and so I really recommend to people to have a listen to, to that podcast interview with Corvan 
because he's when we're talking about rethinking education, we're off, people are often talking about things like rethinking assessment, which is this big topic that's live at the moment, or like systemic change, you know, or like some really fundamental changes. Uh, but Colvan is a, an example of many, many people who are making really, really in, important and, and um, uh, exciting changes within the constraints of the current system. Um, and so I think it's a wonderful thing what you're doing. And if anyone wants to see an example of somebody rethinking education, if you just have a look at Colvan's Twitter feed, The Thinking School 2, I think your, your Twitter handle is, it's just brilliant, and there's there's so much. It seems like you just like seem to naturally just think of like loads and loads of examples of of provocative things to say. And I know you get lots of traction and hundreds of retweets from the things that you things that you that you post. Yeah, it's not always um, it's not it's the, it's sometimes challenging because things that that you know that may seem obvious, that may seem really obvious. Um, some of the feedback that you can get back in terms of particularly perceptions of the, the power relationship between either a teacher and a student or a leader and a teacher is, you know, I think that's something that we really need to, to look at. Um, and which is one of the reasons I see it as a responsibility. Um, sharing practice, whether it's with someone in Australia or the Dominican Republic, is I think it's a responsibility and a duty um, because... We're not, we're, uh, in a, uh, not to sound negative, we're not building cars. We're, we're actually shaping lives. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't be, we, we should be seeing schools as an exciting place, not, not something where actually learning happens when I get home, when I can learn about things I'm excited about, and that the education system is, we're part of that rather than something that is done to us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, I'm really looking forward to this. So if so, if you joined us last week, you will be aware that we have a sort of a loose structure that we're kind of working our way through, this process known as appreciative inquiry. And the plan, as much as far as we have one, is to follow this, this five Ds cycle. So there's define, discover, dream, design, and then destiny. <laughs> I was just thinking about it this morning. It seems like... We, by, by, by adopting this approach, we have a date with destiny, it seems. At some point in the future, we're on a collision course with something in the future. I don't know where this thing will take us, but let's, let's find out together. So, so last week, we started with Define, um, and we mainly talked about what we want to achieve through having these conversations. And I think that the main thing that, we, that, that sort of emerged, certainly for me, was this question, where is the love? In the system, it feels like like it's been it's the, the education system is kind of like a machine, and children are treated as data points, and you know the human connection is sometimes missing. And interestingly, listening back yesterday to the conversation I had with Colvan, you used the word love in terms of the relationship that you have with your pupils, and also another podcast that I published this week with Nahida Maharasingham. She was talking about the same thing when she joined the school that she's currently at. She was like, these children were in need of love and this community was in need of love. And so there are examples of this happening within the system, um, but it's definitely an exception rather than the norm. And, and this question, where is the love, I think sets us up really nicely for the next stage in this cycle, which um, I think we're going to move into today, discover so we're going to like look at what is out there. And there's a, I've just posted on the Facebook feed a really lovely um, short article that, that Lottie wrote recently um, outlining her vision 
for a, 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 a system fit for the 21st century. Um, and so let's get into it. And, and at this point, there's, there's, I, I don't really have any questions, so we're just going to have a free-flowing conversation. Please just uh, raise your hand if you would like to, to speak next. So let's just start with this open question, really, which is, like, what, what is out there? What do we hear of that's out there of people working either within the system or outside of it that we think is absolutely amazing? And if we scaled that up, if we, if we could boost the signal and scale up, you know, the good practice that we see happening already, then we'll be a long way towards uh, rethinking and reshaping education at a system level. So who would like to kick us off? Okay. Great, Sarah. <laughs> like a rat up a drain pipe. Um, well, I just wanted to pull up, because I was listening to your podcast as well this morning, Corban, and I had a big thing of, I'm going to leave the education system because I disagree with it. It's fundamentally wrong. It impinges on children's well-being and all the rest of it. And then it's when you said in your podcast yesterday, teachers aren't bringing their brains to work, right? Or they're not required to bring their brains to work. That was like a moment of, oh, my God, it wasn't necessarily the system, although it kind of partly was. It was that. It was the fact that I'd come out of a PGCE and I'd been learning all this stuff and I'd been involved in theory and I was looking at other people doing the most incredible things in education across the board, not just in mainstream education. And then I walk into a school and it's like, yeah, 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 forget all that. Here's a bunch of kids. This is what you're teaching them. And here's the targets. And I thought, oh, my God, there's no. And I was saying to people, well, what about this? And I've been learning about this. And they were like, oh, get you, you know. Oh, come in here like an MQT. Da, da, da. And then I was suddenly like, oh, my God, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And then so did that for three years. And it's interesting as well in your podcast, you said the three, there's a three year sort of plateau effect. And then I thought, oh, no, we need to actually talk about this a lot more about investing in teachers and allowing them the time to theorize and philosophize and go back to their core kind of or their moral beliefs as to why they're getting to teaching in the first place. And so I think we should start with what you're doing, A, because you're sitting here and B, because I think for me, it's so revelatory, that thing of if I'd have had the time to do what I'm doing now, which is filling my whole world with books on education and different people doing amazing things and meeting and talking to people doing amazing things, maybe I would still be in that system and I'd be 10 years on and I maybe would have made a difference. Does that make any sense? But I think start with that because that's incredible. But Well, um, first of all, I think it, it makes absolute sense and your experience is mirrored with so many other people, including myself. Right, so I, I I walked into a school excited for the first time uh, in my life as a student. The, the PGCE was a wow moment because not only was I engaging in research, but I was able to link that to my practice. I was able to see the impact it was having, rather than just sitting exams or li listening to a lecturer. So when I go into a school and see, well, hold on a minute. The, the, there is no engagement in research. There is no learning over time. That um, essentially my uh, uh, professional learning is limited to one-off staff meetings after school um, and five training days, which people didn't really care about. And so 
I, I actually said, I actually approached um, my senior leaders at the time at the school and said, I want to do a master's. And they said exactly the same as they, they said to you. They said to me that it's not appropriate for an NQT. Do you know how tough teaching is? Do you know how tough an NQT is? I mean, if they, they would dampen anybody's spirit. So I had to do it in secret. So in, in response to what they're saying is, and um, Kate's been to my school, it is not difficult being a head teacher of curious, reflective, research engaged, critical, independent thinkers. It's actually a really exciting place. And, and in other industries, and you know, I, I look to places like you know, software developers, Google, that creativity comes from successive failures and giving people the time to take risks and make mistakes. And we don't do that in our education system because it's dominated by hierarchical models which, which uh, look at focus on accountability power, compliance, control. Um, and just, to, just one other point about that, because um, uh, um, it would be nice to hear from Lottie, is that um, I wrote the book, The Thinking School, specifically for school leaders, but I'm, the, what I'm getting back is that teachers are saying, well, if I don't work in a school in which leaders think like that, how do I influence the system? So, I, you know, I haven't really mentioned this publicly, but I am now writing a book specifically for teachers to change the system from within. Um, I need to find some time to work on it, but I, I think you've got it spot on. And the final point there, as a profession in this country, it's close to using the word disgrace. The amount of people that we lose from the profession in their third, in their fourth, in their fifth year of teaching, and they don't leave because they don't enjoy the teaching or the students, they leave because they've had enough of, of the system. And one final thing I wanted to say there, James, is that often the excuse you hear from school leaders is the curriculum, Ofsted, government policy. Um, my research looked at three tiers of influence that impact on teacher engagement and professional learning. First one is government policy and the leaders of government policy, including Ofsted. The second one is the institutional learning environment in schools, which is most influenced by school leaders in terms of structure and cultures. And the third one is individual dispositions to learning. Good leaders can mediate the influence of national policy and they can, they can influence the learning environment in their schools for teachers. I completely agree with you. And I think that reciprocates so much on the students when you haven't got teachers who are research focused and wanting to constantly adapt and change. And I found that in the sense that so many of my classmates and myself up until recently have a very one-track minded view of not just education, but how my life should pan out. And I've never been taught to criticise and think differently about everything. And that is a fundamental skill that so many students are missing that will improve not just school, but their workplace and their mental health. And um, we've got to stop bashing down students and teachers who are thinking in this way. Because when I can think of one example of my school council going to um, our governing body with a complaint about the uniform policy, we weren't even allowed that meeting. It was a, well, no, this is the way it is. This is how it should be. And if we're struggling with things as simple as that, I worry that when we get up to levels where, as you said, with teachers, um, what's that going to look like? So it's it's incredibly frustrating that we're not thinking in that way because adapting and changing constantly is just what we need. So, no, I completely agree. Yeah, thank you. Um, let's go to Kate, and then there's um, a, a comment that could come in that I'll, I'll share after this. Go, go on, Kate. 
Um, no, I was just going to kind of echo what was said before in that I remember noticing probably around 10 years ago, we were doing one of those inset days where you have to join in. Nobody wants to join in and none of the teachers want to get up. And I was, it was my first day in a new school and I hadn't read the room very well and I did get up and I, I took my whole self to work. So I took the part of me that had danced as a teenager and liked to tell a joke and or I, I, I took my whole self to work. And I noticed that other people didn't. They just took bits that they were being paid for, which was the knowledge that they had in their head and, and, and the pedagogical skills that they'd learned at university. And the fact that they were musicians or artists or fantastic chefs or sports coaches or, you know, anything, it was never talked about. It was never shared. It never went into the mix. And I always thought there was such a huge waste of the resources available to us. So there's, there's the, the knowledge gap that we're not encouraged to close as teachers. And there's the personality and the skills and every part that makes you a human being. And I think that we should focus, like put much more focus on who our teachers are and what's turned them into who they are and use all of them in the classroom and to work much more collaboratively because when we do that, we share the workload and we learn more. And those conversations that, you could, that we used to have when we were designing learning skills around each other's houses or in the corridors because we were constantly trying to co-plan and figure stuff out together, I learned a huge amount about education research about which I knew nothing until I met you. And we all learned from one another. So the, the professional development was huge. And we went really fast and far, really, really quickly because we were able to have those conversations and we brought our whole selves to work. And so I would like to see more of that encouraged in the system. And outside. Yeah, thank you. There's some. There's a really interesting point that that's come up here from Ruth Atkins, who's commented, and it was in response to what you were saying earlier, Colvin. She was saying that she agrees, agrees with what you were saying, but that it's really challenging to have the confidence and the resolve within the current system, especially at the moment with all of the catch-up expectations. Teachers are exhausted, especially in primary. Um, although I think, you know, probably equally in secondary with all the GCSE stuff that's going on. Um, and many of them don't have the energy to, to, to fight this fight, as important though it is. She says, in my experience, it feels like a constant battle to shift the mindset. Um, it's, it's, there's the reality of it, isn't it? It's like the, just the day-to-day -day reality. I saw a tweet this morning from some of the teacher who was saying, you know, they've worked really hard all week. They thought, at least I'm going to get to sleep tonight. And then they just thought about assessment all night, you know, which is awful. But that's like the, the reality of it is that it's really hard when you're when you're within that system to to sort of have the energy or the wherewithal or just the time, just the time, you know, to, to do anything about it, to have these kinds of conversations. Yeah, I, I, I think um, that comment is felt by so many people and we don't spend enough time thinking about what we want our outcomes to be what do we want to achieve and whenever I go into a school and I'm and the language we use you know failing schools especially whatever however we describe it teachers in those schools are working incredibly hard and and 
when when Sarah was saying about not bringing their brains to work, I'll, I'll give you a very simple example because I went I walked into a school in which is which was graded requiring improvement, and the local authority felt it had gone down even further. And we're talking just before lockdown. Um, and if we are not encouraging our teachers to be reflective, critical, creative, how do we expect them to do that for their students? So if, if there's a culture of compliance and control from leaders to teachers, that's going to be replicated from teachers to students, which is why there's a frustration within the system of, I'm just, I'm just going through the motions, this constant accountability. Now, when I go, when I go into that required improvement school, I walk through key stage two, so the, the, the children from seven to 11, and there's a five-form entry school in, 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 in the most disadvantaged ward in a local authority, 20 classes of children. I walked into every one of those classes, and every class had the children sat in rows, in pairs, facing forward, and it was as quiet as anything, pretty silent, yeah? Now, I'm not saying what, actually, I will tell you what I would look for in a school. I would be looking for noise, dialogue, buzz. So when I went into those classrooms, I asked the first teacher, I said, oh, hi, you know, just asking, well, how come you've got them in rows? I thought maybe it might have been a Victorian day, even though it didn't look like anyone was dressed as Victorian. Oh, she said, oh, we've been told to. And I said, oh, okay, what, why? She goes, oh, I don't know. So, so let's go back to the brains to work. You've got a teacher there doing something for 30 children she doesn't understand the purpose of, and this isn't a criticism of the teacher. Further down the line, I went to another class, and, and, the, guy, and, and the guy said to me, oh, uh, we've been told to do it like this. And I said, all right, why? He said, oh, to, to improve the quality of children's talk. And I said, there's no talking going on. I didn't, this was in my mind. And... The only person they'd be able to talk to is the one person that they're sat next to. Maybe I thought they moved the tables around or whatever. So all I did, um, there's two things I'm going to tell you. First of all, I said to everyone, right, guys, look, um, I've noticed you've got your tables in rows. If it's working for you and it's really impacting upon the students, that's fantastic. But if you don't want to have them like that, you don't have to. You can have the room however you want it. You can have them in groups. You can have them in a horseshoe. You can move it around during the school day. Whatever works. Have a chat within your team. When I went, That was Friday afternoon, about 4 o'clock. Monday morning, when I went walked through that school, guess how many of those 20 classes had the children sitting in rows? I'll, I'll give you... Uh, who'd like to guess how many? Zero. <laughs> yeah, it was zero. Zero. So I've gone from a week... In a requirement room school, 20 teachers working in a way that isn't aligned with their values five days a week, monitor the, the hell out of for doing it. So the first thing I said, first thing when I do what I do when I go to a requirement room school is you, everyone needs to just chill out for a bit, right? Because everyone is just too stressed. You need to relax, and we need to reconnect with the craft of teaching. And that isn't going to take one day. We're going to take our time and. And we can give time and space. Leaders in schools choose not to. Mm. Sorry, Jane. No, 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 not at all. Thank you very much. Um, so I'd be interested to hear from, from Lottie as to like, like what, what's been your own experience of this at school? And, and is, it, is, is your desire to get involved with pupil power, has that been shaped by your own experience of school? Or is this something that you're engaging with on a wider sort of like a political level? 
It's definitely stemmed from school experience personally and not just from me but watching friends go through a system that is just not made for them and who have been hit down from the start because they are not someone who is good at English and maybe has the best home life and has their own working space and has family who have an understanding of how the school system works um, and personally I have been quite lucky um, I have an amazing mum who does have that understanding and I have got that own workspace but um, to feel on a pedestal compared to other students who maybe don't is the most heartbreaking thing because I know from my point of view that realistically I have got that that head start if anything um, and that's something that we just want to erase. And I'm not saying I'll take all the privilege that is a way that I and so many others have. Give those privileges to other people. They need their own working space. They need this. They need that. Um, but you say that to a school um, leader and the response I often get is, oh, but that's, that's out of my hands. And I kind of rebutted that with, well, there's 60 plus young people now involved in this network it's not out of your hands because it's not just you. There's so many people who feel the same. You're not on your own. Um, but yeah, it definitely stems from school and um, a school system that's so one-track-minded and so built for one type of student. Right, I see. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And so so what do you see as the main sort of issues? In that article that you wrote, you were talking about a number of different things from like mental health to the, like young people's voices being, being recognised to equitability, to representation, that there being a more Eurocentric curriculum, and that you've talked about that as well, Kovac. Um, what do you see as being the sort of the big things that we need to, to like, what would be the top of your list? That is such a good question. <laughs> um, if it was me, I would just scrap this whole system and start again, but um, I'm going to talk more some achievable for <laughs> what we can do right now and um, but my thing would be representation and I'm going to specifically look at school councils so our school councils are often full of just white students and they're often heavily female students um, and they're often students again who are very privileged in terms of the fact they have their own workspace at home they have um, families who understand the curriculum are able to kind of get them in there they have someone who can help them write CVs and letters to be a part of this, right? So then you've got students who are there um, and who, don't be wrong, are doing a great job. I've been part of school councils for years, um, but they're not representative of what people want. We don't have an understanding of young people who maybe have been hit down by the system constantly. Um, so there you've got a problem straight away with young people's voices not being heard effectively. And then we get to the response from staff members and from the government and just the wider community as a whole um, with challenges that we've brought up in the student council. It's been very much hit down and it's become a, a teacher-led thing. So often with a, a staff attached to the school council, I've had a, yeah, we're going to look at this this term. And I'm normally I'm like, well, that's not what students want. What if we're frustrated about X, Y, Z? And um yeah the response is just well tough luck basically and that's really frustrating because I know these staff members want to make change but there's just this barrier there of that power structure which I don't blame them they've been so trained into not letting students kind of take the wheels and take the forefront so I think they're the two things that are really important get a representative group of students who want to create change in your local community and let them create change don't be like no, you're not doing it. You're not having these meetings. You're not bringing up these issues. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Natalie. Yeah, um, 
that's great, Lottie, to hear what you're saying there. Thank, thank you for sharing. I mean, it's quite personal experiences as well that you're sharing. Um, how do you um, think that you might be able to do that? Taking your last point there, how do you think you can make yourselves heard? I mean, where might you see, seek support um, to give leverage to your voice? Again, a really good question. I don't think I have all the answers to that right now. Um, I think if young people can join people power, um, <laughs> I think that, again, creates a sense of solidarity because we all have a very similar viewpoint on how we want education to be. But in terms of local communities, we need adult allies. We need staff members like everyone on this school who have an understanding of the fact that being in this one-track-minded system is really, really challenging. Um, and it's okay to say that it's not unprofessional. I find a lot of staff members think they can't criticise the system they're currently in because it is unprofessional or they can't do it. It's not at all. It's it's a fact. Um, and again, it helps students trust you better. So having those adult allies is really important. And then reaching students who may be problem children or troublemakers, you hear a lot, and actually saying, why can't they be a part of school councils and student voice? Some of the best student voice that I've ever seen have been from students who have been expelled because they've been so stuck and so frustrated in the system that they have such good ideas on how to change it because they've experienced everything from being in a mainstream system to being in a pupil referral unit to not being in school at all in some cases. And, and I think that's that's really, really important, getting students like that who are often left to the side. Mm. Thank you. I'm keen to bring in Kath as well. Have you got something to add there, Kath? Well, my, mine was point, a couple of points back, actually. Um, but <laughs> I just wanted to share a little bit of a kind of personal story, I guess. Um, I was working in, I uh, did the ones with Skit, and I worked in, in London for a few years. And I was pretty exhausted and burnt out and ended up um, deciding to do some traveling and, and went ended up, ended up British Virgin Islands. And I went out there on my own and my husband sort of followed me some weeks later, but um, the, I went sort of like a coiled spring, I guess, if you like. I, was, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I just knew I needed something different. And, um, and I got to the, uh, it was 24 hours traveling, I think, solidly popping from all over, the, all over the place. And I got to the airport, it was midnight, there were loads of mosquitoes. It was, I was exhausted. And I walked out of the airport. I thought, I'm not even really sure who's meeting me or what's, what's going on. And the person who was there was the head teacher of the school, the international school where I was going to be. It was a, a primary and secondary, and he was the head of everything. And he came up to me and he said, thank you so much for coming. This is great. I'm really happy to have you here. I want you to know that you're really valued and also I want you to know that you're keen for you to bring your strength. And I just felt this spring inside me just like, wow, this is astonishing to have that kind of um, faith from the off and to feel looked after in that way. And, you know, the rest of the time I was there, it was fabulous. I mean, he was the best, the best leader ever. And I'm I see many similarities with Kulvan as well. But I just wanted to share that as a as a little anecdote, really, of my experience. Mm. Stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Sarah? I think I, I just wanted to add to that, Kath, that listening to people's story and Lottie's are very similar because you're just talking about value, valuing mm -hmm. the person that has come to you. 
So that goes for students, it goes for teachers, it goes for heads, it goes for all of it. You know, you want to come to work or you want to go to school or whatever involvement you have in education and feel like I should be here, I need to be here, I'm part of this ecosystem, if you like, and if I'm not here, it, there's, there's less happening, there's less going on, there's less um, value in the whole system but we seem to keep going for that person at the top, the person at the top. And when you're talking about um, CPD days, Corvan, you're talking about your five, um, whatever they're called, personal development days. Again, that's from somebody's, uh, the head teacher's mind of going, we need to do uh, assessment for learning or we need to do student wellbeing. It's not the individual coming in and going, I'd really like to tell everyone about this because I think this is really important. And it's happening across every level in the school the students feel it the teachers feel it you know that anybody that's uh, part of the education system feels undervalued and if we could change that and someone wrote just on a comment just now about changing the culture of school it almost seems like if you do start changing practice and you miss changing the culture or the atmosphere of the school it's never ever going to shift into this like, I want to go to that place. I want to converse with my teammates. I want to be facing five people around a table and, and have conversations about things that really matter. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't turn to, up to work and feel like, yeah, this is a great day. I'm going to really learn something today, if that makes any sense. It's all building on all that, I think. Yeah. Uh, can I just add this? Because I think you've got it spot on again, Sarah, in terms of when we describe it as an ecosystem um, and the... The say, for example, I, I, I said, you know, off off air earlier that the first thing I do first day when I go into a school is establish the fact that we are going to be a UNICEF rights respecting school according to to the Children's Rights Charter. And the word someone said about respect, right? Um, in any institution, there is a hidden curriculum. Not the difference between our espouse theories, what we say we do in the school, and our theories in action. And if I had a pound for every time that I've heard people talk about, oh, no, we, we do what's in the best interest of the students. Well, do you? Have you asked them? And do you really believe that? And so um, in terms of respect, as I, I, I don't even like the term, the word teacher, essentially. So my title was not head teacher. My title was head learning leader because I'm learning and I'm improving every day. Even following one of the reasons I have a conversation like this is because I think it'll improve me as a teacher and a leader. And that is about um, setting a culture. And our culture as, as, as educators in our schools is to is that every day we are taking opportunity to trial changes, take risks, think creatively, bring our brains to work, make mistakes, learn from mistakes. And that is OK. But respect is important because the way in which adults talk to each other in an institution is modelling how we expect children to talk to each other, how we expect children to talk to adults and adults to talk to children. And this is this again is about setting our culture. And and an institution has to begin from considering their values. And going back to Jane's question, what do we need to do in our education system? Is stop looking at the 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 minutiae and actually consider what do we actually want from our education system what outcomes do we want for our students and if we want our students to be articulate 
creative, critical, independent thinkers then think, what does each person in this system need to do to enable our children, students to be like that? And, and the final point about Lottie is while I was listening to Lottie, I then imagined the same words coming from a, a person in their 40s talking about school council or whatever. And I'm, I'm saying, I'm not saying it's unconscious bias, I'm listening more intently because it's coming from a person who is a recipient of this system and, and is working within the system. And I think it's more powerful. So one thing that needs to come out today is more voices like Lottie's being heard. I think we, you know, there isn't enough of that. There isn't enough of that. Absolutely. Thank you. Can we go to Kate and then Natalie? Thank you. I think there's a, a word that's coming up for me that I want to add into the mix, and that's trust. Um, and I think there's a lack of it inside the education system. The teachers or the learning leaders don't trust the children to make decisions. And the management don't trust the teachers to make decisions. And it's something that I noticed and felt very strongly when I came to your school, Kulvan, that you do trust them. And that comes from experience of trusting people and it going well. And the more you trust, the more it goes well, in my experience. And there are lots of leaders out there and lots of teachers out there who don't have that experience. They can't let go. They're like their knuckles go white when you start suggesting that they release some of their power over to children. Like they might just drive it off a cliff. We can't trust them not to make a crazy decision. Actually, in my experience, they make really good decisions and they're really well thought out and they have really solid reasoning behind them. And so something that we can do practically is, is practice, right? We can practice handing over some of the decision making to the children on low stake stuff. Like don't give them the school menu to crack on with straight away. Don't give them school uniform or what time the school day should be. But what's the, what's the routine like when you come into a classroom? How are the desks set out? Um, what do you want to do with the first five minutes of your lesson? What do you want to do with the last five minutes? What aspects of your school day can you take responsibility and ownership for? And just gently release some of that power to make those decisions over to the children. Teach them decision-making processes. Don't focus on the product of the decision-making. Focus on the process. How do decisions get made? What needs to go into that process? How does it work? What happens when it feels tricky? What happens when we disagree? All of these things children can learn how to do. And once they've learned how to do them, you can pretty much set them free to make ever bigger and bigger decisions. And we do the same. You can do the same with your teachers. And then when they can trust each other, the workload reduces. If you think of all those millions of micro decisions that you're making on a daily basis as a teacher inside the system where the control kind of comes down from the top, it's thousands and thousands a day. You can hand most of those over to the other people in the room if you trust them to make a good decision. And so I think I would like to see, again, more focus on trusting one another and learning the skills that we need to be good decision makers because then, then good decisions get made that are in the best interests of the people that they really affect. Thank you. Natalie? Um, so taking the wonderful stuff that Lottie's shared with us from her perspective, 
and what you're doing, Colburn, um, working within the system when you have um, mechanisms like Ofsted and league tables and all that stuff on, on your shoulders, um, how does that, how does what you do um, <laughs> clash, I don't even know if that's the right word, with Ofsted and with league tables, etc.? Uh, well, interestingly enough, um, one of the reasons that I'm in both in my first school and the second school, the second school, the second school that I'm currently leading, uh, were both uh, following really negative Ofsted inspections. So you inherit a staff team that have, are on their knees, that have been working hard. They're told they're not good enough. Um, a climate of fear, but you go back to what Kate just said, you, you have to trust them even more. So the first thing about Ofsted, Ofsted is never mentioned in our school. We do nothing for Ofsted. We don't tell teachers you've got to do this for Ofsted. Ofsted said you've got to teach British values. Um, we didn't because we, we believe that we should be teaching universal human values. And, I, and, and the, the thing I said to them is I said within five years, and this isn't a slur against Ofsted, you know, the good people. I said, within five years, there won't be an Ofsted inspection team qualified to inspect our schools. So we're just going to get on with what we're doing. Don't worry about Ofsted. And I, 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 I was spot on because, you know, the, the inspection team could not understand how our children were so articulate and confident. They, they couldn't see it because they weren't walking into classrooms and seeing teachers putting on a show. Because in our school... There is a greater focus on the children's talk than the, than the teachers' talk. We're more interested in finding out what's in the students' heads than what, what is in the teachers' head. We already know what's in the teachers' head. So that's the first one. The second one about league tables is if you have um, critical, reflective, master's levels teachers working with empowered children, their outcomes are going to go through the roof. They are going to be literate. They are going to be numerate because they are driving their learning. They see themselves as, rather than looking at comparing themselves to others or seeing as um, uh, success is defined by ability, and let's not forget we start putting kids in ability groups in this country at five and six. And my daughter last night, could, I had to do maths homework with her. She's in year seven last night because I said, why don't you do it on Sunday? Because I got home like, no, no, she had this, I need to get it out of the way so it's done. And she talks about herself as, other children are clever, I'm not clever. Because we're not, we're not actually thinking creatively about, I said, do you know about neuroplasticity? She said, what's that? I said, that your brain will never stop growing and developing. It's about how much thinking you do. So you move to a culture where effort leads to success. So that children see the metacognitive aspects of how they develop. And, and, and you have high expectations for all, rather than what Lottie is describing, is defining someone's success by their background. Um, and one of the things we need to remember is students will internalise the values the teachers hold of them. So they will value what is valued in the system. And in the system, we don't value dialogue, questioning, critical thinking, creativity. We value success in written tests. So that's what they think learning is. And so in league tables, uh, for four years in a row, we received the Mayor of London Schools for Success Award for the highest progress for low prior, prior attainers. We're one of only 12 primary and secondary schools. 
in, in the whole of London to achieve that. Now, when I first said we were going to trust the teacher, we were going to do this, we're not doing um, uh, uh, graded lesson observations, everybody, including the associate advisor, thought we were mad. But it, it, you've got to go with what you believe is right. And if you believe that the empowerment of teachers is going to impact on student outcomes, you go for it. So I, I would never say that we can leaders can look at league tables of Ofsted for not working in a way that we're working because because we're showing it. Where, whereas at the beginning, people could say, "Oh, you know, if you trust teachers too much, they're not going to do anything," and you and the students aren't going to learn. You have to control them. So, I, you know, that that has never bothered me. So I think we can we can do that. I'm not saying I agree with Ofsted or league tables, but we we still manage to succeed in those areas too. This is amazing. Thank you. Um, absolutely. And so somebody's commenting here about what we really need is courageous leaders with strongly held values. And I think that you're an amazing example of that. Uh, and it's something that we that we identified as well in the in the end of our book. We were talking about, you know, the antidotes to fear, like fear is fear is endemic. There's a fear of failure. Kids are afraid of speaking out in lessons. Fear keeps you in your lane, doesn't it? And it makes you afraid even there. And there's also a lot of fear within the teaching profession. Uh, fear of losing your job. You know, I know that when you, when you started out at Colburn, the, the school improvement partner said, if you go down this teacher professional development route, you're going to be out of a job. <laughs> you're not going to be able to feed your kids. And, the, you know, the, the fear is real, you know. Um, and it does take courage. It, it takes absolute conviction among our leaders to, to, to lead those kinds of changes. Um, and there's a number of other comments coming through about the importance. Somebody said it's really lovely to see Lottie on the, sharing the same space as Colvan and the rest of us. And, and uh, this is from Ian, who's saying that once trust developed, he's always amazed at the value of young people's opinions and their ideas and what supports their learning. And in my own experience as a researcher, it's something that's so often missing when I, I work with teachers on professional and professional development and helping them do research, researching their own practice. And often the question that's so often overlooked is just asking a kid, what do you think about this? You know, they're talking about we're going to change the homework policy. Have you asked a kid what they think about homework? They're like, no, hasn't really occurred to me. And it doesn't take long, you know. It's just like it's like a two-minute, five-minute conversation after a lesson or at lunchtime or whatever through the student council, say. It doesn't take long to consult kids in this way. But so often, the pupil voice is done in a quite a tokenistic way, isn't it? And it's like, oh, you can basically organise the school disco and there's actually no real teeth to this thing. Anyway, I can see Lottie, Lottie nodding. Yeah, I completely agree. And often it's just, yeah, you can do the bake sale, have fun. And it's like, we're so much more than a bake sale. But um, I really wanted to point out with the trust that we've been talking about. We've had that a lot with People Power. And at our very first event, which we did a call with students up and down the country, was amazing. Um, we got an email from a teacher and it basically said, um, we don't think that you should be having this call because there's no adults here. It won't be safe have you thought about this, this and this? And I remember coming to this meeting with this email in mind. And I think one of the ones where none of you are safeguarding trained and then like four or five of us were on the call, like, actually, yeah, we are. <laughs> none of you have done this training before. Actually, yeah, we have. And there was that expectation that actually what we'd organised was really junior and was it going to work? and Was it going to be safe? Um, but it was. And we we'd thought of that. We'd done risk assessments. We were ready to go. And... Um, and I think that is lacking as well, that um, expectation that young people are always at the bottom of the ladder 
because when you dig a bit further you find out that young people are actually have done training in this through maybe a part-time job or experiences through volunteering um and I think that trust is there needs to grow as well like just ask have you done this before as a young person and often the response is yes that you get back and often when you when you ask young people how confident are you that you can do this like 10 out of 10 nailed it i've done it before many times i'm totally confident or you're around a five or six they will answer you honestly mm. and how can i support you with getting yourself to where to a point where you feel confident enough to lead this by yourself instead of assuming that everybody is a complete novice and needs all the support in the world just ask and when you start to ask you it just becomes it normalizes honesty it normalizes transparency it normalizes asking for help it normalizes all of those things that help us to learn. Um, and it's really easy to do. Once you start doing it, it just becomes your daily practice. And it's not about having policies about student voice. It's about having practices where you listen to student voice and you ask for student voice every day. I mean, it's, I'm sitting here having this conversation and I've got to start, I've got to choose my curriculum topics for next year because parents are asking. I'm just gonna get the kids to do it. There's 17 sustainable development goals. Which ones do you wanna do next year? It doesn't matter what order we do them in. I can hand that, it's, a, it's an admin job that keeps dropping off my list. I can just give it to the kids and they'll have that answer for me by the end of next week. And that will be the admin job will be gone. And I know that I can trust them to do that. I know that I can trust them to sit in a group of mixed ages and have a very sensible conversation about why we should choose the next six themes for next year. Um, but only because I've been doing it for a long time. And so I trust that it will go well. Mm, thank you. Um, so speaking of the UN, can we can we wrap up? I've just got an eye on the clock. We're, sort of, we're coming up to the hour mark and I want to be respectful of people's time. Um, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, this came up in the first conversation that we had where Sarah was saying that yeah, maybe she missed a day when she was doing training, but like then nobody mentions this. And it's like, it seems like quite a serious oversight. And when we were chatting off air before this call, you said something very similar, Lottie, didn't you? Um, and I know that um, that you've done your rights respecting school, um, Colvin, aren't you, at, at Highlands? So let's start with this. Lottie, what's your what's your uh, take on this? Um, I think it's frustrating that that has been crafted and made so well and like if you read it there's hardly anything I would disagree with in that convention but isn't used um and I've, I've stuff in my mind that I want to say that we're doing as people power but I know a lot of it is a bit more secretive right now but a current letter that was sent recently to a government official saying we don't feel that you as the government have respected this part of the convention and we looked at um, the fact that young people weren't allowed to ask and still aren't allowed to ask questions in the um, COVID briefings. If you're under 18 and you try and answer a question, it will go, sorry, you're, you're too young, you're going to have to wait. Um, and we were saying places like, I think it's Finland, have had specific children's conferences and allowed young children and young people to get involved in an adult one. Um, this is against this convention. Look, this country's doing it. It's working well. What, what can you do? And the response we got back was a two-page letter of garbage and basically being like, we already talked to young people. Here's, here's some examples. Examples we know are already non-representative, mainly white students, mainly students who they're getting from very privileged backgrounds. So 
on that level, if the government aren't respecting the UN convention, how are we expecting schools to as well? Because they're following this suit. So that is really frustrating in the sense that we're, we need a government who do respect this convention for it to work. Mm, thank you. And what's been your journey um, with this, Corvan? Well, it, it, I would never work in a, in a school which isn't a um, right-respecting school. So first time I was introduced to the convention was about 10, 10, 10 years ago, and um, straight away, because it's values-led. It's what we, we, you know. I, I think that the fundamental thing we I say to the to the to the adults and the children that I work with is yeah I'm I'm really happy you're good at reading and I'm really happy you're good at writing and it's brilliant that you're good at maths. But my I, I, it's more important to be a good person, and and we forget that because we we want our children to be human and that includes making mistakes and. We need to, I, I would like us to redefine the role of educators. I, I don't see myself as any more important than the children that I'm serving. And I don't see them as empty vessels to be filled with, with, with knowledge. Um, I see uh, the, the title of a teacher within the convention is we are duty bearers. We are duty bearers in ensuring that children have access to those rights in the United Nations Children's Rights Charter. So if you're in a right respecting school and, and you've been told you can't talk in the corridors and there's a zero-tolerance approach, uh, uh, a, a student has the right to say, well, you know, I, I have a right to an education, I have a right to play. Um, and I think, I think this, is, this is about the way in which I see the role of educators is, is different to what the government expects um, us, us, to be, us to do. And the final point I'd say there is, we want every person to come through the system confident in themselves as learners in terms of the skills they have gained to want to learn more, to want to engage, to have a curiosity, not just, yeah, I've done history at school and that's it. And so it's a different, it's a, it's a really different approach. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Okay, let's let's um, do a little roundup. Um, there's a, there's some lovely comments coming through here um, with people saying, um, "Hand it to the kids. This is the way forward." And we can see some rethinking education in action. Where um, somebody said that they're going to email their chair of governors now and request that they have a student council report section added to their meeting agenda. <laughs> so the revolution is being televised. I'm so there. happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Let's have a little roundup in the spirit of discover, of discovery, of, of looking out there and thinking like what is out there that we want to see more of, that we want to boost the signal of. We've seen examples of rights respecting schools. We've talked about examples of, of pupil, pupil voice being taken really seriously. Um, or if you just want to, we just want to close with a sort of with a, with a, with a final comment on everything that we've been talking about today. So let's start with Kath. Oh, thank you, James. Um, so I'm really keen to uh, talk to Corvan further about all of his ideas about ecosystem and community and really creating the conditions for that sort of um, educational community to to develop and to really thrive. And at Sueni, we did some, um, we did that as part of our pilots, we came up with some thrive elements, which sound very similar to the things we've been talking about today. They were just eight thrive elements, freedom, agency, connection, purpose, value, trust, nature, 
and safety. And I think all of those things together um, really work beautifully to create that, that soil, that field for everyone to, to really blossom in. So finding some more ecosystems around the world would be really exciting for me. Thank yeah, you. lovely. Thank you. Natalie. Well, this has been amazing. And um, Colburn, it's been lovely having you here. But I hope you don't mind me saying, Lottie, it's been amazing having you here. And to have that young person's perspective is what I've craved for for such a long time. Um, and uh, I think for me, it's um, we, this session has been all about discover. So we've heard some, we've had some insight as to what life is like. To, I mean, some of us know what it's like through our own children um, and through our profession. But to have um, insight as to what it's like from a, a student perspective is really valuable and so important if we want to rethink education. Um, and I think it'd be great if, yeah, you and Colvin um, and any, anybody else of us, if we can, uh, I don't know, hook up some way uh, so that this can move forward um, and gain some momentum, I think would just be wonderful to have much more student presence um, in changing education. Yeah, thank you. I think we need to get our thinking hats on because you can only fit so many people around a campfire. Hey, that's the that's the thing. We uh, need a bigger campfire. We're going to need a bigger campfire, <laughs> Sarah. Um, I was just going to say, just listening to like the last five minutes or so, I think there's a really easy thing that people can do. Whatever your situation, it might be a parent, it might be a teacher, it might be a head teacher, it could be anybody. Just ask you know always ask before you dive in there and make assumptions on what you might have done what you might have learned where you're at what you feel what you're you know what you bring to the table if you just start by something really simple like just asking the question first then you'll be amazed at what people already know and can already bring to the table and I definitely think that's a really simple thing that teachers learning leaders or you know governors can do around children is just ask them first that's it yes thank you very much kate um i think what i've really taken from this conversation is how united the voices may be i think often we assume that we have to make the decisions that we have to make because if we didn't make those decisions the students wouldn't get to where we need them to be um, so we have to pull them or push them shove them down that journey towards the outcome Actually, I suspect that they would walk much more willingly mm. and we could just guide them if we asked what would help them to walk willingly along their own learning journey and what can we do to support them in walking when it gets difficult and to work together instead of this us and them that there has always been. When I was at school, it was us versus them. It's the narrative on television, it's the narrative everywhere. It's us against them, teachers against the students, forcing them to do what's good for them. Um, I'd like to see that gone. I'd like to see the conversation opened up. We all want to get to the same place. Why don't we figure it out together? Why don't we work together to get to the same place? We're all heading there. Um, and so this conversation has buoyed me up for doing more of that. So thank you, Lottie, for bringing that back into the front of my mental dashboard where it needed to be. Yeah, thank you. It's absolutely critical, isn't it? This idea of education being done to kids rather than being done with them. 
somebody was talking with me this week about the the riots that happened, the London riots, and how you know lots of the kids who were involved in that were kids who were from very very large secondary schools and who would be many of them who had been excluded. Um, and then people were wondering why these young people didn't have a stake in society and that they were trashing their their local communities. You don't have to think too hard about that to to realize that there's a bit of a missed opportunity here. You know, those kids have been through through ten or more years of education when we could have helped them to find something that they're really good at, something that they're really passionate about, helped them to shape their own future, and maybe they would have felt like they had a bit more of a stake in society. Um, and it's not too late. You know, we can still turn this thing around. Um, Colvan. Yeah, I was just, um, there's a sheet of paper here where I've just been doing like a mind map of all these different things that I've, I've heard. And if I was to, to sum up, there's um, this, uh, this feeling of, it's not just the, the students that may be feeling that the system's done to them, it's parents, it's, it's, adult, it's teachers. Um, and I think if we just move away from this this feeling that, that learning only happens starts at five to nine and finishes at five past three because um, we're, we're not we're not we're not using the capacity of our children's brains or our adults brains and if moving away from that and say well we never stop learning and growing and that creativity comes from successive failures learning from failures and and, and I think the narrative listening to Lottie and 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 something that um, others have said is that yeah, it's always a deficit model narrative when we talk about students. We we don't there isn't enough discussion about what the successes of what students are capable of and what they what they can do. So by saying you can't you can't have a voice because you're under eighteen, you know, if I'm a child and I'm not confident enough to break through that, maybe not as confident as Lottie, I'm gonna believe that I don't have a voice and I don't deserve a voice. And so I feel um marginalised from the system. And the other thing that I would say, I really like this Define, Discover, Dream. Something that I've been thinking a lot about and I've been sharing with people because, you know, like I said before, I want to learn, I want to grow every day. If I don't, I will get bored. Um, And I I actually bumped into one of my students from when I was working in Stratford and he actually, he he was driving past and he's turned, he beeped and I thought, He's come back and we spent two hours talking about his experiences and things he remembered. And I started, you know, and I always realised we've got an important job, but I just realised it that much more. So I've started telling people, don't think as a teacher what you want the student to say about you at the end of the day. What do you want them to say about you in 20 years' time? What impact do you want? And that's why if I disagree with something Ofsted's, uh, tell tell me, or, or uh, my school improvement partner telling me to do, that student in 20 years' time isn't going to say, yeah, I understand that that was wrong at the time, but you had to do it because your school improvement partner told you to. No, my legacy is mine. And that's why you, you can't educate students without including them in the dialogue because they that the, the legacy you're giving them is one of disempowerment. And, and, and of, of squeezing the voice. And, you know, I think uh, it's great to have this dialogue here, but I believe we have a responsibility to, to make change happen. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. And and Lottie, what are your final thoughts and reflections on uh, what we've been talking about today? Uh, firstly, thank you for having me. I've loved it so much, and it's been really good to have a discussion like this. 
Um, I've got three points. One being, as Kovan just said, this dialogue is amazing. But if it doesn't reciprocate reciprocate into action, it's it's meaningless. Um, so everyone listening to the school and everyone here needs to go and then make that change in their school communities. And that's really, really important. And um, secondly, um, making sure that everyone has a seat at the table is incredibly important, but it's something you've got to be brave enough to do. Um, and I think that's one thing I want to promote more, bravery among teachers to kind of step outside that box and be like, actually, let's get students who are close to being expelled, students who are homeschooled, etc., um, up to the table and talk to them and have their experiences heard. Um, so again, as we've been saying, ask those students. And thirdly, I wanted to shout out two organisations that popped in my head when we were talking that are really research focused and they're working with um, young people amazingly. First being Innovate Journal, who I wrote that article for. Um, Mira, who runs Innovate Journal, is just incredible. Um, the meetings we have together are on such a level playing field. And um, the issue that we're creating with Innovate Journal and People Power is going to be immense. So definitely watch out for that and follow them. And secondly is Phoenix Education Trust. They have several other organisations underneath them who I've had the pleasure of working with. And after every event we do, they have a roundup call and we go, OK, what's next? And we plan next steps. And it's so young person led. I just wish that we had every school, how they're set up. So definitely them as well. Um, I'd also check out People Power, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, they're my two main ones. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I've long known uh, Mira and the Innovate Journal. That yeah, She does do an absolutely incredible job with that. Um, so so thank you for that. And the Phoenix Innovation Trust, was that the second one? Uh, it's Phoenix Education Trust. Sorry, Phoenix Education Trust. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'll look that up as well. And please do um, spread the word among your pupil power buddies. We would love to have more of them on uh, involved in these conversations. And maybe to have a few that have just got young people, get rid of all these old fuddy duddies and we'll just um we'll just have a few with yeah. young people because um, you know, the kids are all right, aren't they? Yeah. Turns yeah. out there's nothing to be scared of by by asking young people to to be involved in shaping their own futures. And it seems so so ridiculous that it, when you phrase it like that, that you wouldn't do. Like it is literally their future, isn't it? And so why why would we not be involving them in in shaping that and co-constructing an education system that they feel like they want to be a part of because that's the thing isn't it there's just there's this residual sense that kids just so often feel like it's just done to them and they just sort of feel disconnected from it and exhausted and it just it does not have to be this way and what's so sort of um frustrating but also so uplifting i think is that it's we're not far away from being able to fix this thing like it's not hard to, to become a rights respecting school. It's not hard to start taking pupil voice and representation really seriously. These things can be done in a, in a moment, in a decision, and you just like send an email, make a phone call, have a conversation, and the ball's rolling, and you start to shape a different, a different future. So thank you all massively for, um, for sharing your time with us this morning, and to everyone who's been watching and commenting, uh, as a final point, Ian just commented, he said, um, I leave inspired with fire in my belly. When I need a top up, I will listen to this session again. Thank you all. So how lovely is that? <laughs> well, that's it. Thank you, everyone. Um, I think we need to, to douse this fire out for now. Until the next time, it'll be two weeks today, whenever that is, the fifth of maths. Where is my maths gone? 22nd of May, I believe. Thank you all, and uh, we will see you again. Thank you, everyone. Thank Thanks, you, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.